This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. I've heard with you uh, uh, many times before, I, I think even here recently perhaps, that it's uh, my view that Christianity is under attack. Christian culture is under attack. Uh, and from uh, my perspective, that culture war uh, is ongoing and we're losing soundly, doubtlessly, obviously. Uh, Christian culture is losing the culture more. Marriage uh, has been attacked. Good news, divorces are down. The reality is marriages are down too. People don't bother with marriage anymore. They just uh, live together. They, they move in. There was a time when I first joined uh, the police department back in the 70s. Uh, this is, takes me back a ways even. But uh, policemen back then, we were still harassing hippies. The hippie culture was there. And uh, people were still getting arrested for unlawful cohabitation. You realize that? 1970, give or take. Um, divorce, living together, whatever, there, there's no stigma attached to, to that anymore. That's, that's, that's a front on the war I think we've lost. Substance abuse, you know, uh, drugs no longer seem to uh, ha have, again, the stigma that they used to have. Um, not only um, are, are they unstigmatized, uh, we use them as a source of revenue. We legalize them. Um, it doesn't bother us, uh, the turmoil that they cause in people's life. If there's a buck to be made, uh, we want in on it. The government uh, wants in on it. Not only do we uh, condone it, we provide the needles. Some states provide the places where you can go in and do it and just uh, make sure if you need some Narcan or something in the process, well, we'll be there to, to save your life. It's, um, it's different. Ten Cindy's uh, drug use is rampant. Sexual mores have changed. That's another one uh, battle we've lost. Laws against indecent exposure. You used to have to go buy a dirty magazine to see what you see in the aisles at Walmart all day long now. There's naked people in parades, you guys. And the kids are in the parades, and the kids are watching it. It's okay. Child abuse, to me, exists now. It's condoned. Uh, I, I, would, I would call it a, a form, in, a, in a form of what we call gender reassignment. We conduct routine child abuse. And nobody seems all that shocked about it. Uh, I, I would suspect tax dollars are even going to... Um, to support it. I wonder if there's any behavior at all today on the, uh, from a Christian perspective that, that, that it isn't okay to attack the Christian view of things. I, I don't think, I, I think people lay in bed at night wondering what can they come up with next that they hadn't thought of yet to go against, to undermine, to insult Christian culture. I think that's the lay of the land. I just say all that to get your juices flowing and it, it might in the sermon here somewhere, and it might just uh, distract you for the rest of the hour. 
We're in Daniel. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 5. Daniel is a book written to a group of exiles. The exiles of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came in. He took in 586 B.C. He conquered Babylon. He took the temple. He took all the vessels. He destroyed it. But actually, 20 years before that even happened, he began exiling people out of Babylon and, excuse me, out of Jerusalem and taking them back to Babylon. So we have a group of exiles in our book of Daniel. is about Daniel and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We started in chapter 1. I'll do a little review here because I see some faces that were in here last Sunday. Uh, he took uh, those, uh, those three people find themselves in Babylon. They've, they've been ripped out of their homes, ripped out of their culture. They've been renamed uh, uh, pagan names that reflect the pagan gods. Uh, and the king has taken these, this group of really upper crust Jew, Jews and he's trying to re-socialize them to become good Babylonian citizens. He's trying to undermine their old culture and, and bring in a new culture. And they have resisted that in some measure. They refused him to eat the, the king's food. Uh, there was something in it apparently that wasn't uh, kosher. And uh, as a result of not eating the king's food, they suggested to the guy taking care of him, we'll just eat vegetables. And if we grow strong in a couple of days, you leave us alone, let us eat vegetables. And so they ate vegetables. They gained weight. They got stronger. Uh, God was very pleased that they did this, and he gave them intelligence, he gave them understanding, and he gave Daniel the ability to interpret dreams and visions. Chapter 1. Chap chapter 2, there's a, a statue there, gold, silver, bronze, and clay, and the statue ends up representing Babylon and subsequent countries, that are kingdoms that will succeed Babylon. The idea of chapter 2 was simply God was encouraging the exiles. I'm in control of Babylon. I know what's going on here. He serves at my pleasure and my command. I knew what I'm doing. I've got your back. So we've been we're told in chapter 2 that God is in control of all the kingdoms of the earth and their comings and goings. And sometime at the end of time, uh, a rock will come, Jesus Christ, and he will be an eternal kingdom that will not fall and will not fail. Chapter 3, we have a fiery furnace. And in chapter 3, we learn the lesson that God's people will never burn in the fiery furnace of hell. He protects his people. We are secure in, 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 uh, in our etern eternal um, place in life. Chapter 4, last week, we talked about salvation. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, right? God made a decree. He said, this is what's going to happen to you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're going you're to lose your mind. You're going to think you're an animal. You're going to graze with animals. You're going to eat the same thing they do. You're going to sleep on the ground, all right? And for a period of time, this is who, how, how you're going to live. You're going to be insane, until you recognize, until you admit, until you know that the king, that, that the God, God of heaven, still haven't got it right. Anybody want to help me here? The most high God. There we go. That the most high God is the God of the universe and there are no pagan gods. And, and at some point in time, God decreed that to happen before it happened. And when God decrees, his decrees always come to pass. And Nebuchadnezzar did, in fact, reckon he came to praise God. And he came to, to a place of faith, all right? His circumstances, he was put in circumstances that were ugly, that he was insane. And, and what we take away from that is to be in a state of unbelief is to be in a state of insanity, all right? And, and, and that was what I tried uh, to take a take away last week. We're going to do it today. Chapter five happens in four scenes. Uh, the first ten verses, we're going to talk about a situation. Then uh, in verses eleven to sixteen, we're going to talk about a suggestion. 
Verses 17 to 28, we're going to have an interpretation. And in verses 29 and 30, we'll have a conclusion. Now, there's some literary stuff going on in this book that I don't want to distract us, so I want to get it out of the way before we get into the text. You're going to see uh, in uh, chapter 5, in verse 2, you'll see Belshazzar when he tasted the wine. Uh, <coughs> tasted the wine, <coughs> commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken. His father. There's some, uh, some Hebrew, this is a Hebrewism going on here. We're going to see this word father six, seven, eight times in here. And we're going to address the father. And I want you to understand, this is not, this is not Belshazzar's actual father. This is a Hebrew way of saying it. Uh, this, this is, um, Nebuchadnezzar was not his father. Belshazzar's father was a, a, a guy named Nabonidus. All right? So Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. Then Nabonidus became the king of ba Babylon. But Nabonidus really didn't have an interest in being king. He had other interests. I don't know exactly what they were. But he let his son become the king, Belshazzar. So Belshazzar's true father was Nabonidus. But as we read through this whole thing here, keep in mind when we see father, we're going back to grandfather. We're going back to Nebuchadnezzar. All right? I don't want that to be a, a, an item that confuses you along the way. Also, in verses 16 and 29, we're uh, going to see a reference. Actually, I think there's a third verse on it, too, about the third ruler of the kingdom. That there's a reward offered to somebody, and the part of the threefold reward is you will become the third uh, ruler of the kingdom. What I want you to understand is we have... Uh, number one, we had Nebuchadnezzar. Number two, Nabonidus. Number three, Belshazzar. If Daniel or anybody is uh, offered a reward to be the third ruler, it's not to be the king. There's some kind of a position there in Babylon in which uh, it, you, will, you get that position, you are called the third ruler, okay? So don't try to figure that out. You'll get lost. And that's all you need to know. Uh, last time in chapter 4, I addressed the issue that um, uh, the, the term that will be used again in this chapter in verses 11 and 14 is uh, Daniel is, is said to have the spirit of the holy gods, lowercase, spirit of the holy gods. Daniel is said to have the spirit of the holy gods, lowercase. If you look in your Bible, you have a footnote there. And your footnote will also say that this could properly be translated just as well, spirit of the holy God, uppercase, or spirit of God, uppercase. And as we read this, uh, we're going to see this uh, twice today. I don't want you to think that Daniel has the spirit of a God without a capital G on it. To me, the context clearly here is Daniel has the spirit of the most high God, the spirit of the most high God. So as we go through this, don't let those literary uh, uh, anomalies be a distraction for you. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of a thousand. Hebrew always, and numbers are symbolic. 
there weren't exactly a thousand people there. I just point that out to you because later in this book, numbers are going to become important, and there is a trend in reading through the book of Daniel to want to make numbers literal, and they're not. Throughout the book, they're always symbolic. So there's a thousand people here. What you and I need to know is there's a large party. And what's going on at this party? Some drinking. It's my party. I'll drink if I want to, right? He's thrown a party. It's a very large party. He's got the party, and he's got all of his friends uh, there. Now, verse 2. <coughs> Excuse me. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, he brought that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and the concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. All right, let's talk about that for just a second. It says here that he tasted, when he had tasted the wine, that's a nice way of saying when he had had too much wine, okay? He's tasted the wine. They're drinking the wine, and so he's getting a little loose here. Some of his filters are maybe going away. His lips are getting a little, little bit loose, okay? And he decides, he knows that when his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, conquered that temple back in Jerusalem, there was some really valuable vessels there, some gold and silver vessels, and they've been in storage all this time, you know, through, through, through generations of time. Quite a few generations of time. Uh, actually, we're going to find out here, maybe even 70 years plus time, these things have been in storage. But he decides, because he has laid in bed at night and tried to think of a way that he can insult the Jewish culture. Sound familiar? How can I insult this culture and undo this culture? What can I do? What do they cherish? What, what is, is most valuable to them? What was more valuable to them than the temple vessels? He sends somebody out, and he says, go get them, bring them here. And then the king, the lord, their wives, their concubines, they all drink. You can picture this now, right? The lords, all the important people are there. The kings is there. Uh, everybody's got their wife there with them. And in this culture, they had concubines too, uh, additional wives, that serve them in different ways, and they're all there having one big family, happy family, ha having a party. The vessels are brought forth, and what do they do with the sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem <coughs> that would be highly uh, considered sacred and holy in front of the Jews? They drank from them. They poured wine in there, and they drank from them. Those were priestly uh, vessels to be drunken from. That was an order of the priest who could handle those things and touch them. And yet now everybody, even the, the concubines, are drinking from them, and they praise their gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. What are we supposed to see here? Talking about the situation, we're in, we're in part one now, the first ten verses. There's two, two parts to this scene, and that's the, the first part. What we're supposed to see here is, is, is from a Jewish perspective. Now, this book is written to the, to the Jews, right? Daniel is writing to his own people. And what he wants them to see is look what these guys have done. 
This is the most grievous insult that they could dream up, you know, to possibly insult us. Somehow, it's the most blasphemous thing they could do to put us down. All right? Anything related to the temple was holy and sacred. This is the worst of the worst. They have profaned the sacred. They have spit in the eye of the God, of the Most High God. They, they, the contempt for the exiles and their, and their God could not be more demonstrably, demonstratively expressed or shown. They're trying to show us, you guys. They, try, they were trying to show us by this act. This is as heinous as it gets. The, the word that, that we would use to anything that goes wrong in the temple, this is an abomination. If you're not familiar with that word, let me introduce the word to you. It will be used many times in Daniel. It's used throughout the Old Testament. It, it, it's used in the New Testament, always to reflect something that's happened in the temple to desecrate the sacred. This is an abomination. It gets no worse than this. That's what Daniel has been told to report. This is what Belshazzar has been led in his wildest dreams to do. The worst that he can think of, he's executing and he's doing here. If God wanted to have somebody offend his people in any worse way, I don't know what it would have been. This was the worst of the worst. It was an abomination. That kind of sets the, the tone, you know, for, for the rest of the chapter here, okay? Belshazzar has acted in the extreme. <coughs> we'll keep reading here. This is the second part of the, the situation. Immediately the fingers of human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite to the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. I want to stop here. I want to camp uh, uh, on something. I want to camp on one word. This is, uh, I think, uh, the most important word to follow through the chapter with. The word is immediately. He's done what he's done. The most grievous thing he could possibly think to do. The most, the most insulting. He spit in the eye of God. He spit in the eye of, of the Jews that are there. All right? Immediately, something happens. Immediately, something happens. All right? Now, la la last time um, we met, last Sunday, in chapter 4, um, Salvation came to Nebuchadnezzar, but he didn't have it initially. He didn't have it until God put him in and made him insane. And after, his, after he realized the Most High God rules, that's when his insanity went away and his reason returned to him. Same kind of thing in the New Testament. If you think of the prodigal son, the prodigal son goes out, he does what he does, and at some point, the, the text says in Matthew that he came to his senses. His reason returned to him. And when it did, then, then, then he returned, okay? Same thing. So we've got another salvation story here. We're worried about Belshazzar here. He's not looking too good, is he? All right? 
So if he's not looking too good, is this going to repeat what happened in chapter 4? Is he going to get a reprieve? Is God going to do something to bring Belteshazzar along? Well, what I'm going to suggest to you, what, what's going to happen to Belshazzar after he does this, it's going to happen immediately. It's going to happen right now. We're still there. Right now, as we're still there, performing this abomination, engaging in this abomination, something happens right now. If I had my act together when you drove in here this morning, the sign out there would have said, right now. Okay? <laughs> On your bulletin... <coughs> If you, go, if you collect a bulletin when you come in, you look at the title of the sermon, it's right now, okay? I'm working on right now this morning. Right now, I'm working on right now this morning. Um, is he going to get a reprieve? Like, like, no, he's not. L let me just warn you right now because this hand is, is prescribing some doom. I'm cheating. I'm going ahead. But you probably know the story. And if, you, if you don't, you know, what's happening to him right now is his salvation is lost, his abomination was so bad, it gave so much evidence to his lack of faith, unbelief, his depravity, that he is lost. All right? He's not going to have a chance like Nebuchadnezzar had for a deathbed uh, conversion. He's not like a thief on the cross who, who gets into heaven so close to, to burning in hell that he gets into heaven smelling like smoke. He, he, he is, he's gone. He's done. Immediately right now, he's done. Can you imagine yourself in such a situation? Can you imagine things going along and everything's great and, and life is wonderful and, and all of a sudden some catastrophe comes and right now you're done. You're done. You're out of here. Get broadsided, a car hits you, run concrete, or whatever. Right now, you're done. Right now. This guy's living on the top of the world and right now something happens to him. It is ha it, 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 we're about to hear from God a decree. And I suspect Belshazzar has some things undone. How would you like to get hit by a car and be gone in a moment knowing that you have some things undone? Could happen? Probably not. That's what you're thinking. We're going to finish the chapter, even though I'm, I'm kind of hinted, told you here uh, how it's going to go. But there's some writing on the wall here. And the writing on the wall is with a Sharpie. It's not on a white, erasable whiteboard. It's not on a chalkboard. This is not coming off. This is on plaster. All right? Because it says here, then the king's colored, oh, and it wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave away, and his knees knocked together. The king... Okay, and his knees knocked together. Stop there. Something supernatural has happened. This isn't just, you know, uh, special light. You go to Disneyland and they, they were able to put videos up in the sky. I guess they put smoke up there and then they telecast it on the sky. You know, or, or maybe somebody's, there's some kind of artificial intelligence coming and they're going to be able to do hands. It's just a hand. You know, there's no body attached to it or any, anything. But there, there's some, this is like, whoa. He knows what's going down here. And he knows in the back of his mind, you know, what I just did was pretty grievous. You know, it, it was kind of off the chart. But the supernatural event has come. And 
his, his, his color changed, his thoughts are alarmed. We're going to keep seeing this word alarm. Alarm is the key word that will keep being repeated. His limbs give way, his knees are knocked together, okay? Some fun Hebrew here, his color changes, he's alarmed. His limb gives way, literally in Hebrew, he, his limbs became untied. He has untied limbs, okay? I wonder what that feels like. Have untied limbs. It says his knees knocked together. Literally in the Hebrew, it says uh, the knots of his loins are loosened. <laughs> Did he wet himself? The, <laughs> the knots of his loins are loosened. So, so you got to picture this guy with untied limbs. The knots of his loins are loosened. You got to, you got to picture this. I got some several pictures. Of this is in my mind from back when I was a policeman of seeing people in absolute panic mode, just collapse, and they can't talk, they can't sing, they can't, they can't tell you what happened. They, they've just folded. You know, and, and that's essentially what's happened here. One, one time we took a, a sign alarm at an elementary school, and windows opened, so me and my, this other guy, Pat, he, we're covering each other. We walk, climbing the window, we, we're crawling through the building, and we can hear these two young guys talking down the hall, and we, we walk down the hall, and as we get down the hall, Pat goes, you know, watches this, and he gets right right up there, and he jumps out, and he goes, please freeze, really loud. And the kid, uh, the knots of his loins were loosened. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't transport him downtown. Pat yelled. I mean, Pat, Pat had to take him downtown. Uh, and, you know, I'm just saying this guy is done. He, 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 he gives up. He's not going to, you know, sometimes you have fight or flight. It should be f fight or flight or fold, you know. <laughs> to me, he's folded. The, he, he, he can't fight. He, he, he can't run. He, he has just completely folded uh, to the whole circumstance. And you know what? He's there and there's a thousand people watching there's a thousand people seeing what's happened, wondering, you know, I thought this guy was king. I thought this guy was in charge. You know, what, you know get, into, get into the moment. Get into the scene here. So what does he do? Well, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing to make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were per perplexed. So, so what's, what, what's happening here is, once again, we call in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, who we, as a group from here on out, we'll call them the wise men. Okay, that's what he keeps calling them now, is the wise men. He calls in the wise men, and once again, they fail. The wise men, this is, the, this is their third appearance in the book. They failed to be able to interpret his first dream. He, did, he, wouldn't, he says, tell me what I dreamed, and they couldn't tell him what he dreamed. Then he had another dream. This time he told them what he dreamed. He said, what does it mean? They couldn't tell him what it meant. It says right here that they have failed again. Third swing and a miss. That's strike three. They're out. It's over. The inning is over. Okay? The side has been retired. This was the best we had. These were the wise men of the kingdom, and they were helpless to interpret the dream, or the hand, what the, what the hand has done here. 
All right. He remains alarmed. His color still changed. And again, the people of thousands, it says, it says there that the lords were perplexed. His color changed and his lords were the people there with him. You know, he's human. He's being humiliated, you guys. He started this thing off with a great mighty act there in the hall banquet. And he's been humiliated. He's been brought to his knees. Right? His loins are loosened. He's untied. In summary, he's found himself in a very grievous situation. His unbelief has not been benign or or ambivalent towards their God. He's been hostile. Last, Last week in four, we were given the picture of a man who was insane. This week we are given a picture of a man who's, who's not just ambivalent about another faith. He is hostile to it. And he's done a hostile act to it. All right? He has committed an abomination. The writing is on the wall for him. And that writing on the wall, don't, don't miss it, it's a decree of God. And, and what we learned last week, God's decrees come to pass. The decrees of man fail, they are forgotten, they go away, they change in time, but the decrees of God come to pass, and what is written on that plaster wall will come to pass, period. Immediately, right now, his fate is sealed. What's he going to do? He's brought the wisest of men. Is there any solution? Is there any suggestion on what he might do? Yes, there is. We get to scene two. A suggestion will be made here. Now, when a man messes things up, as we sometimes do, we'll take a vote on that. What, what, What straightens a man out, usually? A woman, okay? So we have a, we have a woman comes to the scene and uh, comes to save the day. And uh, in this case, it's a queen. The queen, verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. And the queen declared, okay? She declared, O king, live forever. Stop a minute. Who is this? No, initially you want to read this and you want to say, well, this, we're talking about Belshazzar. He's the king. He's the queen. No. Because, see, see back, back earlier in the chapter, in, chapter, in verses 2, 3, and, and repeated, when they had the banquet there, it said that the lords were there, the king was there, the lords were there, their wives, and their concubine. Now, I have no doubt that Belshazzar is married. He doesn't seem to me like the kind of guy that would stay single for very long, you know? And so I believe his wife was already there. Now we have a queen has come in. So the question, the queen of who? So uh, we have two options here. This is either uh, Nabonis' wife, his father's wife, uh, the, the queen, and, and that would make this his mother, the, the queen has come in. Or it could potentially be in time, a scale of time. This could even be Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Because she, some of the stuff she's going to talk about here, she, she may have been there personally to have observed. Or if it's just his mother, you know, maybe it w- the information was passed on to Nabonis' wife. So this is what I, the main idea is it's a woman. It's not his wife. So probably she's older, 
with, so we, we might expect, as we do with most of us older folks, that there's great wisdom <laughs> has entered the, entered the hall, an older woman. So she comes in, she honors him, and she addresses him first, okay? She, she, she knows the protocols, she knows the etiquettes, and, and, and she performs them. Then starting uh, in, in verse 11, it says, um, Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the Spirit of the Holy Gods, capital G, has the Spirit of God. In the days of your father, Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explaining riddles, riddles otherwise in the Hebrew, untied knots, he could untie knots, riddles uh, and solve problems were found in Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and show the interpretation. Right? So she's making a suggestion. In her wisdom, she's coming in, she uh, acknowledges you know, to uh, um, Belshazzar uh, that, that he's the king, but she says a very important thing here. She says uh, in uh, 11 there, there's a man. There is a man. There's a man who might be able to help you here. I, re I read that, and, uh, and you know what it reminded me? It reminded me of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and Jesus goes up there, and he offers, uh, he gets a drink, and he says, I have water that you'll never thirst again, water you, you know not of. And since he, he tells the woman all about her divorces and all the husbands that she's had. And, and eventually, at the end of the conversation, she realizes this is Messiah. This is Messiah. And so she leaves there, and she goes back to, to the people, and what does she say? Come and see. There's a man. Come and see. There's a man. It's the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Same thing, same thing happens in the first uh, chapter of John. Jesus has gone out, and, he, and he's looking for disciples, and he's picked his first couple of disciples, one of whom is Philip. It's the very next day. Philip gets out of bed in the morning, and he runs to his buddy Nathaniel. And what does he say to Nathaniel? Come and see. There's a man. Jesus is the Messiah. He's here. Okay? Well, this is Daniel's version of that. And the queen says, there's a man. There might be somebody here who can, who can help you out in this. Okay? Um, and this man, he has the spirit of the Holy God, capital, uh, capital letters on that. Nebuchadnezzar, your father, found wisdom in this man. Maybe you can find wisdom in this man, too. It's your history, you know. Nebuchadnezzar made him the chief of the wise men. Isn't that what our text says? He wasn't just another one of them. He made him the chief. He put, the, he put Daniel over the wise men. The chief, he promoted him, and he promoted his friends, too. All right? This is a... Uh, kind of interesting, you know. In a lot of ways, though, you need. Uh, I, I, I'm reading this as a rebuke. She's the older woman coming in. She sees what he just did in the banquet hall. She hears what he just did in the banquet hall, and, and she's, she's in a sense, she's saying, you know, you're running down the Jews. Well, Daniel was a Jew. Daniel's one of the exiles, and he, he was. Your father made him a chief. He showed him respect. 
You know, he, and a matter of fact, one chapter back in Daniel, he, uh, Nebuchadnezzar said he has the most high God. And he, and he put out a decree and said, don't do or say anything bad against the Jewish God. And here you are, and look what you're doing. I wonder whose wife she was. Was she Nebuchadnezzar's wife? Or was she the wife of Nabonus? I, I wonder if she wasn't uh, saved. She, seems, she almost sounds to me like a, a woman of uh, faith. Uh, but she's made a suggestion here, and what you and I ought to know about this suggestion is she's a day late and the law was short. Because the, the writing's on the wall already for this man. So let's get to the interpretation. That, that, that kind of sets up the whole thing up for the interpretation. Um, this, this interpretation comes in two parts as well. Uh, then, starting verse 13, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought to Judah. Let's, uh, let's parse that just a little bit and read between the lines here. Belshazzar is a man who has no respect for the Jews. He's demonstrated that. Now the queen whom he ha has some respect for, has made a suggestion to him to let one of these exiles come in. So he lets Daniel in, and he says, oh, you're that Daniel. Okay? You're, you're, you're that Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah. You read, you read the condescension here? All right? Um... This is the tone that is in this passage, this portion of the passage, and I want to carry this tone throughout the rest of the passage. All right? What, what he's after here, uh, he, he, it's not an earnest plea to Daniel to solve his alarm. He is, it, it, he's condescending in every way that he can. You know, and maybe he's placating the keeper, but he's still a hostile man, all right, who has no way to turn. But he's putting Daniel down. As Daniel enters the room, it is beneath Belshazzar to even be in the same room with this man. I've heard of you, and that the Spirit of God is in you, and the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. And now the wise men, the encanters, have been brought in before me to this writing and make known to me its interpretation. They couldn't show me how the interpretation matter, but I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Well, now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed in purple and have a, a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. All right? I just want us to get the tone going here. And the reason I know that tone is here because of verse 17. <coughs> this is part two of the interpretation. We're going to start here. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I am writing to the king and make known to him, I will make known to him the interpretation. <coughs> Context. When we get to the end of the, uh, of the chapter here, we're going we're to realize that Persia has just defeated Babylon, and, and in the context of all the stuff, you'll have to go through Daniel, the rest of the book with me to get all this. But what we know here is that uh, along comes Jeremiah and says, you guys are going into exile for 70 years, and where we're at right here on this day is 70 years. It's been 70 years since 586. Daniel's been in there. He, he, he might have come in there uh, 10, 20 years even earlier than 586. 
Okay, whenever you date the 70 years into, but 70 again is a symbolic number. It's the full period of time. And it's somewhere in the approximation of 70 years. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 10. But at any rate, Daniel, my friends, has got to be 80 years old. If he was 10 years old plus 70, he's 80 now. If he was 18 when he was brought here, he's 88. All right? He's an old guy. I consider myself an old guy. And when you get old, something happens to you, and, and you reach this place in your life where you don't have time to suffer fools. <laughs> and this guy is a fool. And basically what he tells him, I don't need no gold chain. I'm 88, dude. You know, uh, What do I want with a purple robe? I'm retired. And like, I want to go back and be third in command and ruler in your kingdom? No. I don't need any of that stuff, okay? So he, he knows he's being put down, but he says he gives it right back to the guy. I don't need your stuff. I don't need your reward. But I'm going to make the interpretation for you. Daniel knows his role. He knows where God's put him, and that's what he's going to do. He's going he's to interpret. So here's how, how Daniel introduces the interpretation. O king, verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all the peoples, nations, languages, they trembled and they feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up in pride, that's my word, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew. Heaven until, until, until he knew that the Most High God rules. He's done the same thing the queen did. He wants this guy to know. You know, th those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, right? This guy either didn't know his history or didn't care his history, and he's repeating the mistakes uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel's telling him, you know, I've been here before. And when I was here before, God gave your great-grandfather, grandf Nebuchadnezzar, he gave him a reprieve. And that was the reprieve. He made him lose his mind. He made him insane. But you're not insane, Belshazzar. You're hostile. You know, that, that, that's what, that, that to me is, is what's going on here. And that's how Daniel is telling him that the cow eats the cabbage. Verse 22. And you, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You knew your family history. You knew your legacy. You know, Belshazzar, he took those Jews, and, and, and he wanted to make something of them. He educated them. He renamed them. He saw something in them. And all you want to do is read. He knew, but you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And, the, and it's proven, it's evidence. But the vessels of the house have been brought in before you. And your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see and know. But the God in whose hand is your breath. The God in whose hand is your breath. The God whose hand is your breath 
You breathe at the grace of his hand, and you have spit in his eye. You have insulted his people. You have committed ab abominable acts with the, with the temple vessels. And he holds your breath in his hand. And whose are all your ways you have not honored. Daniel knows he got put down. Daniel's now, he's shaking this guy down. He's bringing this guy down. He's telling this guy what he's done to the very God that allows him to breathe each breath that he takes. He's not honored. So we get to the interpretation. Now I wonder here. <coughs> Daniel's 80, 88. You see a cynic. And he's, and he's thinking, man, this is the part I've been waiting for. <laughs> okay? Or, you know, what's Daniel's heart here? And I, and I don't want to mislead you because I don't know. I don't, I don't know if he has a heart of compassion for the guy or if he thinks, I mean, just, I'm glad I get to be the guy to deliver this message. But here's the message. Then f from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene means God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Nebuchadnezzar, the days of your kingdom has been brought to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. There's nothing redeemable in you. You have been weighed in the balances and there is nothing in you redeemable. Pettus, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. We know historically that's exactly what happened to Babylon. In, in a moment's time, in a brief and quick battle, uh, Babylon fell and uh, it, it went to uh, the Persians and the Persians split and be that, that became a divided kingdom among itself, the Medes and the Persians, okay? So you're done, Daniel. That was written on the wall back in verse 11. The decree was made in 11 before it happened. A prophecy, a decree of God always is fulfilled, comes to fulfillment. Daniel was, am I allowed to say the word screwed? He was screwed in 11, and from 11 on, his destiny was determined. The queen's suggestion had no matter in it because the decree was made on the wall. Those words were written on the wall then, and they weren't erasable. There wasn't going to be a way out for him. That was it, all right? Now let's come to the fourth scene, our conclusion, verse 29. Then Abelshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. A proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. Belshazzar still at this moment in time seems to me to be clueless. He rewards Daniel, but it's an acknowledgment to Daniel that he has interpreted the dream or he wouldn't be getting the reward. Somehow Belshazzar acknowledges the accuracy of, of the whole thing. Then that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius, the immediate Mede, received the kingdom being about 62 years old. He did, in that banquet hall, 
something that was abominable. It was an abomination. It was an absolute rejection of God Almighty, God the Most High. All right? And because he did that, right now, immediately, in that moment, his fate was sealed. And the decree was made. All right? Let me ask you a couple of questions to get out of this thing. Number one is, what does chapter 5 add to chapter 4? This is the way the book of Daniel is written when you go all the way through it. Every chapter adds something. It adds something. I got, I, I'm in control of your circumstances. I'm in, in control of the kings. I'm, I'm in control of your eternal destiny. You, you, I know you're in exile, but I got you. I got you. I still, you're still in my hands. And, and, and salvation can come even to someone as bad as Belshazzar because I decreed it before it happened. I decreed what would happen to, to, Bel, uh, to, excuse me, to Nebuchadnezzar, and it in fact happened. So we have in chapter 4 a story of salvation where God wanted to show us that salvation can come, right? And he sometimes uses the circumstances in our life to get it. Chapter 5 needs to add something to that. Some people want to look at chapter 5 and say, this just shows us how he's in control of the kingdoms and see how Babylon went to the Persians. and, and all. This is about a kingdom in, in a fashion. But chapter 4 was not about kingdoms. Chapter 4 was about a man. It was about a tree. Remember the tree? And he kept talking about it, the tree, the tree, it, the tree, it. And then it changed the pronoun to him. And we learned, oh, the tree represents a him. It's a human being. And then Daniel came along and said, thou art the man. Ye, the tree is you. you. This was a story about a man's salvation. Chapter 5, we're adding on to a story about a man's salvation. I'm not talking about king. Kingdoms are in view here. But what we're adding to chapter 4 is something else to learn about salvation. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar's salvation came, but wasn't going to come until he, he acknowledged the Most High God. This guy was so abominable. What happens when you don't acknowledge the Most High God? What happens to a man? Okay? Chapter 5 wants to make clear that while Nebuchadnezzar's good fortune sometimes unfolds for you and I in a similar way, God uses circumstances in our life. That is not always the case. Okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something here, and only a few of you in this room are going to know what I'm talking about. Burma shave. <laughs> Burma shave. Okay, well, I can say in one hand, there are two hands, okay? Dick probably got it. Used to drive down the highway. When you drive down the highway, there would there would be a series of, of road signs, and, and the first sign would say you know, "Burma Shave." You know, it was, it was a sign you know like like so and so, and you had to slow down to read the sign. These kind of th these were commercials, but at the same time they were kind of PSAs, public service announcements, crafted in a way to slow you down to, to promote traffic safety, and, and there would be a sign. And then and a quarter mile later, another sign, and a quarter mile later, another, and, and you add, had to add them all together to get the thought. And uh, for, for example, <coughs> you know, Burma Shave, then the one who drives, when he's been drinking, depends on you to do his thinking. Burma Shave. Okay? You can drive a mile a minute. But there is no future in it. Burma shave. It was cool. People would slow down and stop and take pictures and, and whatever. Don't lose your head. To gain a minute, you need your head. Your brains are in it. 
Google it. There's a bunch of them. Uh, that doesn't have anything to do with anything. <laughs> I can remember driving with you to Harris Canyon and, and, and going places. This is back for the freeway. It was just a two-lane. Yeah, almost 66 was just two-lane road going through there. And, uh, and it wasn't the Burmachave signs that I remember, but I remember it was painted on a rock. Somebody would paint Jesus Saves. Remember the, anybody here remember those in Canada? Jesus Saves. And I remember as a young kid asking my mother, what does that mean? You know, we're Catholic. What does that mean? You know, and mom would, would try her best to explain to me what it meant. What, what's coming to my mind here th this morning is Jesus saves is an incomplete sentence. If those rocks were still out there, it would be our job to go out there and add to the graffiti. And we would say Jesus saves sometimes. Jesus doesn't always save. He saves sometimes. Chapter 4, man, he saved a hard dude. He, and the, the, guy, the guy was insane until he came to his senses and was saved. Now he's showing us that there are some people who are absolutely hostile to God. And they will not be saved. In a moment, in a right now moment, they will go. Driving home uh, from Colorado, sometimes we just get bored. Got a little pack of CDs, and so we just put one in and play it. Put the next one in and play it. Put the next one in and play it. So we're driving home uh, last time around, and um, Stephen Curtis Chapman, credit where credit is due. He's got a song on this uh, great CD of his, um, and, and it's called The Next Five Minutes. The big idea of the song is that God gives us five minutes at a time to live our lives. And you and I live in, a, in kind of a default thing. We always think in after this five minutes, then there's the next five minutes, then there's the next five minutes, and there's the next five minutes. And sometimes that's the case, and sometimes it isn't. But the song keeps saying, you can't dwell on the past. You can't look to the future. You've got to live right now. Because you may be in your last five minutes. And if you're in your last five minutes and you've got something to take care of, you better take care of it now. Don't live under the presumption that you're going to keep getting another five minutes. That's not always the case. Sometimes you don't get a chance to make a dying declaration or an opportunity for a, 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 a final thing to say, I believe. Sometimes it comes when it comes as it came to Belshazzar. It came in a moment. It came immediately. It came right now. And you and I should live as if we are living right now in the last five minutes. If we get another five minutes, then we'll live that five minutes as if we're living just right now in this five minutes. If you are a believer, if you are a child of Abraham, run your waist well every five minutes that you are given. Ephesians 2.10, God, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, not that we should walk in them. Run. I told you last time, run. Run your race every five minutes. Run full speed. Run your race. If you are an unbelief still, what this passage, last week our passage told us to be an unbelief is, is an insane position. What the passage this week says, if you are in unbelief, if you don't own your faith, you are hostile to God. Jesus said, 
You're either for me or you're against me. There is no middle ground. There is no ambivalent position. There is no benign position where I think there's, I believe in God, but no. You're either for him or you're against him. You're in or you're out. Now, some young people in this room have convinced their parents that they're Christians. And you got your parents snowed. And some parents in this room have your kids snowed and that you are a Christian and that you own it. And some husbands and wives are playing the same game with each other, pretending that you own it, but you don't own it. And if you don't own it, you're not ambivalent, you're not thinking it out, you're hostile. You're hostile to the kingdom of God. There is no middle ground. It's insane and it's hostile. And did you notice uh, the verse 30 there, that very night he died, immediately he died. But you know what? The world went on. The Persians and the Medes, they went on. Nobody stopped. Nobody wept for him. Nobody remembers him. Nobody's going to remember you. You got five minutes to live well and to live right. Do you have some unfinished business you need to take care of? Kids, adults, old people lie to themselves too. Elderberries lie to elderberries. That's what they do. We're just good at it. <laughs> Doing it for a long time. What I'm, what I'm going to do right now is say to, for, for us for, for who live a moment in time and a five-minute moment in time to stand before the Most High God and to say, I'm thinking about it. You know, how ridiculous. That is insane. That is hostile. So what I'm going to do right now is that close. You know, usually we, we quit preaching and then I pray some, some great words. I'm not going to pray any great words. I'm going to bow my head. I'm going to let you bow your head. If you have some unfinished business, take care of it. 